0: As heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the completed canon. Thank you for revealing to us what the truth regarding our salvation and sanctification really is through Scripture. Thank you for the time allotted to us and the faith, the measure that you've given each one of us to concentrate this evening to enjoy a message like this one we are most grateful and thankful of course for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this evening a reality we do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message may it be edifying for our souls we ask this in jesus christ's precious name by the power of the spirit we do pray amen again the gospel salvation sanctification part 70 I was thinking a lot um, this morning as I was preparing this lesson, uh, and I told you I've been sort of um, intimating as I go that with the change in the schedule, it gives me more time to do sort of reflection, uh, which I believe is one of the things, one of the fruit he wants to bear from this particular soul, uh, so that I can share things like uh, this up here on the board. Think of it this way, if you were to personify faith, and this is just food for thought, just to get us sort of situated, personifying faith, if faith were a person, who and what would it be if it was forced to abide in things seen and not the unseen? Would it be happy, quote unquote, knowing that its greatest contribution to the world was being missed out on? What's Hebrews 11, 1 say? Faith is in the things we cannot see. So faith, by its very nature, abides in the unseen. So if we were to personify faith, if faith were a person, who and what would it be if it was forced to abide in things seen and not the unseen? Would it be happy, knowing that its greatest contribution to the world was being missed out on? One way to think about faith. Where does, it, where does it thrive? In things unseen. That's the very nature of faith. And so we have to think of faith that way. That The faith that God wants us to have is not in material or tangible things. It's in the unseen. It's in the supernatural. Natural is this stuff, right? Natural is wood and clothing and what have you. Supernatural is transcendent above natural. <clears throat> and that's what true faith is really in, and that's where it it really thrives, is in the supernatural realm. So here's an analogy for you. How many of you own a vehicle? Everybody. Uh, Andrea's the only one. Nice car, though, Andrea. Nice new Subaru. How many of you own a vehicle? Keep your hands raised if you can tear it completely apart. Put your hands up. I know everybody in here holds a vehicle, right? Keep your hands raised if you can tear it completely apart and then put it back together again. I know, Nate's the only one, right? And he's legitimate, he's a mechanic, right? Okay, you can put your hands down. Most of us drive two to four ton vehicles at high speeds, yet the vast majority of us have no idea of how all the systems work to make it happen. So it's fair to say that by faith, we step on the gas pedal. Fair? And by an even greater faith, we step on the brake pedal. Yet none of you, except Nathan, kept your hands raised. And arguably, most of you have no idea how a vehicle does what it does. You just get in, you turn a little key, and you push on a pedal to go, and you push on a pedal to stop. You have no idea how that thing works, but yet you get in it every day, two, three, four tons of steel, and you drive, some of you over the speed limit, at like 65, 70, sometimes 80 miles an hour. But you have no idea how any of that stuff works. So you put your life on the line every time you get into it, and frankly, Thousands of others, too. So my point is simple. This came up on Tuesday. Faith takes us everywhere. You don't need to understand every last aspect of the inner workings of a vehicle in order to have the faith necessary for it to take you from point A to point B. Isn't that the same thing as faith, by grace, through faith? We might equate that to the vehicle. And sanctification, which might be our ultimate destination. Indeed, it is. You don't need, the point is, you don't need to know every last detail in the Bible to be sanctified. You only need faith. Who here is going to say that they know everything in the Bible? I'm not. But I have faith. In what? That I will get from point A to point B. That if God says, get in the vehicle, and you're gonna, I'm going to take you from point A to point B, I have faith that he'll do that thing. I don't know everything. It's arguable I know more about mechanical things than the Bible even. That's embarrassing to say it, but it's maybe even true. That's how, that's how much respect I have, personally, for the book, and how much is actually in there. But, I don't know everything about the Bible, neither do you. But yet, by faith, we know that God will sanctify us. So you don't need to know every last detail in the Bible to be sanctified. You only need faith. That's a wonderful way to think about what we've noted with Acts 26.18, for example, up here on the board. Being sanctified by faith reveals the nature of our sanctification... At salvation, it is by grace through faith, that's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which sets the pattern for sanctification, which is Romans 1, 17, from faith, positional to faith, experiential. So reflect for a moment. As I listened to Tuesday's lesson, I was thinking about the following probing question. Walking by faith. If you have faith, will you do anything other than walk by it? Just stop there for a moment and think about that. If you truly have faith, and we're going to talk about this for a moment, will you do anything other than walk by it? Suppose, in other words, if God gives us faith, which He does, and if that faith were 100 I mean 100% pure, and I speak as a man because that's not going to happen right now. Isn't that faith the means of our perseverance? In other words, if you have pure faith, unadulterated, 100% faith, you're not going to have it in this in time anyways. But suppose you did. That's sort of the ultimate goal of all of this anyways, of sanctification. Suppose that you had 100% pure faith. Isn't that faith the means of our perseverance? If it were totally pure, would we ever be motivated to do anything other than God's will? No. Second Corinthians five seven, Romans eight one to nine, Galatians five sixteen to seventeen. So, as we reflect on that point, in the strictest sense, we might rightly say that we couldn't do anything else. Only potentially, which was Jesus' existence. Jesus could have sinned, but he didn't. It wasn't that he wasn't able to sin because he was tempted, which implies that he technically could have. The Bible says he was tempted in all things so that we might have a high priest that can sympathize with us. So we know that the potential was there. But if you think strictly about faith, his faith was so pure that even though he potentially could as a human, he never did. So what does that say about where God's taking us and about faith in us and to the degree that we have said faith? And then think about the absolute promises of God in sanctification. He says, I'm going to give you the thing that's going to guarantee your perseverance. And this is a promise I made to you at salvation. And God's not a liar. Satan is. So if your faith were totally pure, would would you ever be motivated to do anything other than God's will? Well, Jesus' was pure. And did he ever want to do anything other than God's will? No. So in the strictest sense, we might rightly consider that we couldn't do anything else, only potentially, which was like Jesus. And that old Latin phrase, some of you know it, posse non peccari, it means able not to sin, as opposed to not able to sin. He was able not to sin. Given the point on the board, some thought uh, this evening, or give this some thought this evening when you get home, and you should find it freeing. Let's look at some scripture, though. 2 Corinthians 5.7, go there. 2 Corinthians 5.7. I want you to really think about that, folks, because these are some of the finer issues that have been tabled for a time. Uh, God the Holy Spirit, believe it or not, even in 70 parts now, hasn't actually touched on some of these finer issues, some of these more challenging issues, so you must be ready for them. But these are things that he had me consider before I even started the series. They all dovetail together, but you have to sort of pick at them over time. 2 Corinthians 5.7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. Let's consider Paul's words to the Romans now. Go to Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1. And again, we're just amplifying the point on the board. Walking by faith. If you have faith, will you do anything other than walk by it? If you actually have it. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in this chapter of the book of Romans, paul the issue that Paul is addressing is salvation proper. This is not a, quote, so-called spirituality slash carnality verse. This is about salvation proper. And he starts off dogmatically by saying, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you believers free from the law of sin and of death. In other words, we're no longer under that law. That's what happens at salvation. We've learned this. Verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That again is a reference to believers. For those who are according to the flesh, that's a reference to unbelievers, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, believers, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Not even able, not able not, but not able. That's different. That means it's completely precluded as a possibility. There's no potentiality even there. I hope you see it. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. This is the flesh. And this is all the unbeliever knows. For it is not even able to do so. And that echoes of 1 Corinthians 2.14, which reminds us of the fact that the unregenerate can't understand spiritually appraised things. Verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, if you're unsaved, you're still in the flesh and you cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Why? Because you're saved. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That echoes of 2 Corinthians 13.5. that says, test yourselves to see if you're even in the faith. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Okay, And I hope you see what the Spirit's saying. He's saying that the pattern for the spiritually dead unbeliever is that they cannot even subject their minds to the Spirit of God. You might say in the Latin, then, something like non-posse, non-pacare. Not able to not sin. That's what an unbeliever has to look forward to. They're not able not to sin. (laughs) That's all they know how to do. In other words, that's all they know, folks. Remember, whatever is not from faith is sin. So says Scripture. So that is the very nature of unholy, unsanctified things. Spiritually dead things are mutually exclusive of spiritually alive things. Which means, for you mathematical folks, if you were to draw a Venn diagram, you remember those things, they wouldn't overlap. A Venn diagram is like take two circles, and you go like, and you make them overlap. Anybody? Andrea? Yeah. There would be no overlap. They're mutually exclusive. The issue then for believers is walking as per our current principle up here on the board, walking by faith. Again, what the Spirit's doing is teasing this out of you, saying, Well, what if I had perfect faith? What would that be like? Well, the only person we can look to that ever had perfect faith was Jesus Christ. And he never erred from the Father's will. Ever. That's what true, 100% faith does. If you have it, it quote-unquote mandates that you walk by the commands of God. Does that make sense? That's what true faith looks like. And if you're not, like Scott taught on Tuesday, there's a bit of arrogance left in you. There's something that's precluding you from receiving said faith. So walking by faith, if you have faith, will you do anything other than walk by it? In other words, if God gives us faith, and if that faith were 100% pure in us, I speak as a man, isn't that faith the means of our perseverance? If it were totally pure, would we ever be motivated to do anything other than God's will? We see Paul's reference to walking. Go to Galatians 5.16. Galatians 5.16 Now here he's talking to believers proper. He's not making a a distinction about salvation proper. He's talking to a group of believers and he's saying walk the way you should walk, in other words. Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets itself or sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So even though you've been saved, you've been made new, you're a new creature, the old creature still exists. Like Paul says, who will free me from this body of death? We're just shackled. Remember the old um, Tarsus uh, visual, where uh, the penalty if you were a murderer was they would shackle you, hand-to-hand, feet-to-feet with the person you murdered. And as they decayed, you would receive all the disease and eventually you would die too. That's what it's like to be carrying around this body. That's the visual that Paul gave us when he talked about that thing, who will free me from this body of death. And he also goes into great detail in Romans 7, right? I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Why? Because of the flesh. And these things are at perfect odds. So if you're in the flesh, like we saw earlier in Romans 8, that's all you know. But if you're in Christ, you know differently even though you're dragging around the corpse still, and will until the day you die or are raptured and receive a resurrection body with no old sin nature. But we are to walk, so Paul is encouraging us nonetheless to walk by the Spirit. And so if you had perfect faith, 100% absolute purified, perfect faith. Isn't that what you would do all day long? Indeed it is. Isn't that what Jesus Christ did all day long? Indeed it is. Why? He had perfect faith. Another example to allude to what we talked about earlier, the Bible says that Jesus didn't know everything. As a human being, he had to grow in wisdom. But yet he had perfect faith. So you don't have to be a quote-unquote academic giant even, human, to have perfect faith. Interesting to think about those things. The more equipped we are for ministry, let's say, for evangelism, for addressing the Great Commission, the more likely we are to walk by the Spirit. But equipping, equipping, isn't just a scholarly issue. This is what the Spirit's saying. He's saying if you want to walk by the Spirit, it's not just learning more details. The thing that's going to allow you to walk is faith. You could—I've taught this before. You could literally memorize. Maybe you're a super genius, right? You could literally memorize the entire Bible but have no faith. Or you could understand the fundamentals of the gospel be saved and a couple of few other things and have way more faith than the person who memorized the entire bible so it's not about necessarily the details it's about how much faith you have so equipping isn't just a scholarly issue it's more properly scoped as a faith issue for God allots to each a measure of faith, so says scripture that's Romans twelve three God allots each a measure of faith that means it's God's sovereign right to give you the faith when he wants when you're ready, maybe the only word that comes to mind for me always is humility he's not going to we know james uh, 6. We know He's not going to give it to you unless you have humility, because that's what He does. He gives grace to the humble. So the issue, my friends, is not a scholarly one. It's a faith one. We considered a litmus test on Tuesday after referencing Ephesians 4.11 and 12 up here on the board, which looked like this. So we looked at Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Why all the spiritual gifts in the church? For the equipping of the saints for the sake of others, for the work of service. So that litmus test was stated this way on Tuesday, are you equipped for self or for others? In other words, how do you view even this thing you're doing right now? Coming to church, why do you come to church? Is it just so you can hoard doctrines? Or is it for others? In other words, are you here to serve yourself? or you ultimately got the joy set before you of serving others? Are you going to go out after you're equipped? I've got a nice um, blog, the next blog coming out I believe is on, remember the show MASH? It's like that. It's, this is the medical tent, but where's the front lines? Out there. The Great Commission is out there. This, you get equipped in here, to do the greater work out there. As cocky and as arrogant as some pastors can get, this is not the greatest work. The greatest work is evangelism. And you're all evangelists. Scott has a special gift, but that's different. But you're all evangelists, and that is the greatest work. it's not this. That I'm convinced of. So you have to ask yourself, are you equipped for self or for others? And that's a matter of personal perspective. We know God's good intention is, as Ephesians 4.12 states, to equip us for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, to serve others. Jesus spoke about this often. That's the greatest love, right? To lay down your life for the brethren. Our job is to serve others. Sure, the Bible says an awful lot about gathering together. Don't forsake it for as long as it's today. Encourage one another. This is wonderfully encouraging, even though you don't laugh at any of my jokes this evening. right? But I'm not a stand-up comic, so whatever. This is about a good work, coming together, being healed, eye uh, ointment, the washing of the Word, it's all wonderful work. Necessary, absolutely necessary work that has to happen. But you have a job. The job isn't... In other words, you're not doing your job by coming to church. That's like the soldier who goes and says, I'm going to get a shiny new rifle and sit in my bed in the barracks and just show it on Facebook? How do I look? Selfie number 38,002? Or are you trained to be a warrior? To go out? Where's the real work? Is this important work? Absolutely. But where's the real work? Be honest. If our Great Commission is outside of these four walls, where's the real work? So, don't be religious. Religious people think they're doing their, quote, duty by coming to church regularly. God's happy because I just make it to church. That's my contribution to the spiritual life. I go to church. No, my friend. That's no different than a soldier that just decides to show up for training every day, but then when they're called to fight, they have some objection. So you have to ask yourself, the point on the board, are you equipped for self or for others? We know what the Bible has to say, that you're equipped for service, for serving others. So therefore, as the Spirit taught us on Tuesday evening, don't dismiss your own pulpit because of even something as Inconsequential as your personality type. Some might be saying, Oh, well, you know, look at Scott, he's all bubbly over there. Obviously, not Monica, but I do. Okay, heck with her. <laughs> Scott's, you know, uh, extrovert, let's say, or so and so is an extrovert. So, so what? There's a lot of introverts that don't like extroverts so much because they drain the tar out of them. So they tend to associate with introverts. Other introverts. Imagine that. You mean I could have a pulpit with one other person? Yeah. Scott said, "Who's your project?" Yeah. It doesn't it, look God's looking for you to be faithful in the little things. Not everybody's a superstar. Not everybody's a rock star. It's ridiculous to speak anyways, but I hope you know what I'm saying. Not everybody, there are, I believe this, there are legitimate pulpits that have well over a thousand people following them. And they're legitimate. And the guy standing there is not trying to be a rock star. It's just the mission that God gave that person. But as long as he's faithful, it doesn't matter if there's two or twenty thousand. God doesn't say, you're a much better uh, person Soldier, because you're teaching 20,000 than the guy who I've called to teach two. As far as I'm concerned, I'm looking at the faithfulness in their hearts. And each one has their own tests. This one has to worry about God knows what with sordid gain and everything else, which most seem to inevitably get to, but whatever. And this one has to worry about discouragement. Jeez, I used to have like hundred people now I got three that's kind of discouraging folks so this one has. but God looks at that and says but you're the right man for the job same thing in your life you're the right person for that pulpit for that virtual pulpit that you have whether it's at work or with family or with friends or whatever So don't dismiss your own pulpit because of your personality type. We're all given a unique pulpit. The Spirit's trying to change your perspective on evangelism. That it's not just to be left up to ordained communicators. All I can tell you is, honestly, and if you don't realize this by now, I don't know what to tell you. I do my job. Honestly, to the best of my that I can. Probably not perfect, but you know what I mean human really and i'm the same guy just told you look this is not where it ends you don't say i'm going to put money i'm just going to put more money in the bucket or i'm just going to come more often because he looks a little depressed he looks a little discouraged and that'll be my duty support pastor ed that is part of what you should do absolutely but that's not your end goal this is the medical tent your job is out there Your duty is not being fulfilled just by coming to church. And I think there's a lot of people out there that think that's the spiritual life. They're like, but I go to church, and I go regularly, and I learn all kinds of nice stuff. And I do share some of that stuff with others when it comes up, but I'm kind of quiet, so I don't, you know. And they have no sense whatsoever of the Great Commission, which is go and make disciples of the nations. They just say I'm living the spiritual life by going to church and I'm going to draw this little ice insulated box around myself and the more technology I get the easier it seems to become to live in a bubble and I'm never going to even interest myself in evangelizing anybody well I'm here to tell you as the medic here you're missing the mark I don't want to be the guy that fixes you up and then you go sit on the couch back there and eat donuts I want to fix you up. I want to see you go outside, grab a weapon. Read Ephesians 6 when you get home. Grab a weapon and go. And if you only evangelize one person, great. And that was your lot in life, great. But do not make the mistake of thinking that you're living the spiritual life by simply making it to church. The Bible doesn't say that. So the Spirit's trying to change your perspective on evangelism. That it's not just to be left up to ordained communicators. Like on Sunday, when I got really fired up at the end there about evangelism. You know, people are like, oh, that's that's fantastic. I wonder what he's gonna do. What do you mean? I wonder what Pastor Ed's gonna do. What do you mean? I wonder what we're gonna do as a church. I wonder if we're gonna have more here it is events. Yay! And we can eat donuts and you know, whatever, and feed some people that could care less. Or maybe, just maybe, that was your shepherd saying, get off your tushes. This is what it's all about, my friends, the Great Commission. Coming to church, wonderful, get a refill, you know, if you want to fill up on (laughs) junk food or whatever, fine, you get the point. But this is not the end goal, folks. So I want to echo something that came out on Tuesday as well in my own soul. Go for it. Evangelize as if there were no tomorrow. Live in the imminent return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11, because it is imminent. Because it is. Evangelize as if there were no tomorrow. that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, tonight. Because it is imminent. Evangelize as if someone else's life depends upon it. Because it does. And remember Jesus' words, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So you're never alone. Oh, I'm scared. I don't have the personality for it. I don't, you know, this kind of thing, that kind of thing. It's just enough for me to come to church. That's justifying something ungodly in your soul and i don't know what that is i have my ideas i know what could be there but i don't know exactly what's there but i know that we're really good at justifying ungodly things amen i mean like we're like legitimately experts (laughs) right i've heard so many i don't I, i can't tell you some of the things i've heard this past week that are, they, they, um, they're crazy. Like, the people that are saying, they don't even realize the lunacy. You know, like, uh, let's say it this way. I'm going to use variables. They'll tell me something last week and then they'll tell me something completely or do something completely contradictory to this so-called woe. And they justify it to me of all people. And I'm like... Are you seriously? Don't even tell me what you're doing anymore because you're you're driving me bananas. You're saying one thing. You're saying you're this, that, and, you know, whatever. You pick the, the woe that people complain about. And then you tell me about this other thing that you're doing that doesn't just run against it. It exacerbates the problem. People are crazy, and they're justifying it. It's insane. People are literally, I think... To various degrees, insane. Amen. I'm just saying. I'm speaking from experience. I'm not throwing stones. Let's read this passage together to help drive this home. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5 1. It's, It's just amazing the things that human beings will say and do to justify ungodliness. To justify ungodliness. Including perverting scripture. Some people want to be religious. So they pervert scripture and they turn it and they twist it and they do mental gymnastics and they make it artificially complex so that there's a religion to be stratified upon. First, when it's all really simple, 1 Thessalonians 5 1. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. that's a reference to our Lord's judgment. It's coming. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren are not in darkness that's a reference to the believers you're of the light you're in Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is the light but you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief for you are all sons of light and sons of day we are not of night nor of darkness in other words we are not we are in the world but we're not of it and that echoes of Uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17, specifically verses 11 and 14. We are in the world, but we're not of it. And Paul is echoing that in 1 Thessalonians 5.5, verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. That echoes of Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. If you're sober, all right, what's the first thing? If you get pulled over for drunk driving, what's the first thing the cop's going to tell you to do? Walk this line right here. Are you going to walk straight? No. If you're intoxicated in the spiritual life, you're going to walk a straight line? No. Then you're not going to be walking by the spirit. That's what sober means. Not intoxicated, opposite of intoxicated. Verse 7, for those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. This is his encouragement. He's not saying you're not saved, he's encouraging you to be sober, to not be intoxicated with the world, with the lusts of the flesh, etc. That's what it means to walk. Having put on the breastplate of what? Faith in love. Faith in love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is what? Love. That's elsewhere, 1 Corinthians uh, 13 13, right? The greatest of these is love. Hmm. So up here on the board, let us be sober. Paul is encouraging believers to be who God desires for each of us to be. Experientially, which is not intoxicated with the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the world. The flesh is a complete addict, a drunk. And all it really wants is to be intoxicated with the world. It can't even help itself, as we just saw. It's not even able to walk by the Spirit. So let us be sober. Paul is encouraging believers to be who God desires for each of us to be experientially, which is not intoxicated with the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the world. Verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath. That's not even where we're going. In other words, when you follow the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the world, you're walking in a direction that's inconsistent of where you're headed overall, ultimately. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. That's one of the things, obviously, that a church like this lends itself to encouragement. It's one of the, probably, arguably one of the great, after the actual pristine objective of teaching you the Word of God and guiding you in Scripture, encouragement is right up there. It's right up there, folks. So this answers the question we pondered earlier. Again, are you equipped for self or for others? Are you equipped for self or for others? And that's your personal perspective. What's your perspective on coming to church, being equipped by a shepherd like this one, who's doing his job, what is it for? Do you think just going into the tent is living the spiritual life? Or is there an objective? Is there a purpose for all this training? Yes, of course. Which is others. So if spreading the good news is our chief objective, then we must also ask ourselves what exactly might be the reason why we aren't doing more of it. Again, if spreading the good news is our chief objective, then we must also ask ourselves exactly what it is or why we aren't doing more of it. And be honest with yourself. And hey, listen, we all know you're an expert at justifying your ridiculousness, so stop it. Right now, stop it. Oh, you know, I'm I'm stupid. No, why? get down to the nitty-gritty why and if you struggle with it read the book on arrogance because that's what's got you pinned up against the wall so stop justifying and ask why am I not doing more of it I ask myself this all the time all the time why did I do I mean why why do I do that why did I not evangelize this person am I like a chicken I'm afraid that someone I've never met before and probably will never see again is going to judge me as a Jesus freak. What is my problem? I had issues. Right? It's ridiculous. What's my problem? What's your problem? Scott brought out a good point on Tuesday up here on the board on that note that we're all evangelists. Some of you would rather endure a hardship than do the work of an evangelist. This begs the question, what is labor for Christ? We know that we're joint laborers. It's God's field. He'll equip us. But we are joint laborers. But then what is this labor for Christ? What is it that we're supposed to be doing? And I agree with him. I think some of you would rather endure hardship than do the work of an evangelist. In other words, you'd actually say to God, just give me more, I don't know, ailments, physically, emotionally, spirit, whatever. Just pour it on more. I just don't want to go out and evangelize. So it begs the question, then, what is labor? Is it simply showing you can take a punch like Rocky Balboa and keep standing? Look at me! I'm tough as nails. And you might be. And there might actually be a witness in there. There might actually be something that, on the grand stage of things, even the angels are rubbernecking to see. But the supreme objective is to go make disciples of the nations. Now, if that gets you a seat at the table, people are encouraged by your tenacity, your perseverance, great. But there's more. There's the Great Commission. Might the primary goal be to win the fight by delivering a punch like Rocky seems to do at the end of every movie? He's like this big, and like the other guy's like this big, and somehow he hits him, and the guy goes down. Nobody? Whew, what a crowd! That's a lot. Go! Everybody go like this. Right around here. <laughs> or here. I'm wondering. Now, not to become confused about who's behind our punches. We, as Paul says, you know, we are what we are by the grace of God. Remember, God has inspired the word and the spiritual gifts necessary to equip us for a reason. It's wonderful that you're here. It's wonderful that most of you are dedicated to this thing. But that's not the end goal. If you need to rest for a while, then take the time, certainly. But just know that the end goal, the reason for your being equipped, is to achieve the Great Commission, the work of evangelism. So stepping back for a moment now, all of this points back to our primary course of study even regarding experiential sanctification. What do you think he's doing? Why all this sudden talk it seems like on evangelism, the Great Commission? Because that comes with sanctification. Five years ago you weren't even thinking like this possibly. Now you are. Guess what? That's sanctification. You're realizing more and more That time is short, life is short, and people's, quote-unquote, lives are at stake. This is the biggest, quote, game we'll ever play. We're supposed to run to win, right? So says what? Scripture. We're not supposed to box as beating the air in futility, praying so everybody can hear, like the idiots used to do in the old church, blowing our own trumpets, look at me, I'm here again at church. So all this points back to our primary course of study regarding experiential sanctification. All the Spirit's really saying is He wants to give you the right perspective. Sanctification is being who God has made you to be, to be full of faith, full of hope, and full of love, is the greatest thing we could hope our lives become. And if we are full of those things, He will use us for mighty good works along the way as part of our sanctification. For example, evangelism That's what sanctification is, my friends. You don't have to be a Ph.D. You don't have to be a doctor of theology. You don't have to be any of that stuff. Jesus wasn't. Neither were his apostles. So you don't have to be those things. You have to have faith. You have to be humble. And for some of you, you're being humbled right now. Only God knows to what degree. For some of you, that whole little side note on justifying your ridiculousness was humbling. And hopefully it lasted more than five seconds this time. Or maybe it'll last five steps into the parking lot instead of being dropped at the door. And then maybe next time I bring it up, it makes it all the way to your car. And then it makes it all the way past your texting and driving on the way home. And then it makes it all the way past your, you know, Big Bang Theory reruns on your couch with your Doritos. Or maybe it makes it all the way to your nightly prayers. You get the point? This is the perspective, folks. You do not have to be a scholar to see these things. The Spirit also added another qualifier to the point on the board, up here on the board. God is not trying to make us scholars, but lovers. Scholarship is never the basis of peace. You know how I know that? Been there, done that. Been there, done that. Had my scope a little wrong. Figured, hey, I'm a smart guy. I'll just become a little brainiac in this Bible. And I kind of did for a time. And then he showed me. I was getting more frustrated than set free. I was getting more in bondage than I was set free. I'm like, what in the world is going on? Wrong tact. God's not trying to make us scholars. I believe that there are many, many people that have this completely wrong. Completely wrong. Backwards. And they don't have peace. They'll tell you they have peace but what they really have are notebooks filled with definitions of peace. Just think about the car analogy at the start of class. Most of you are definitely not scholars when it comes to the mechanical workings of your vehicle that you drive. Yet, by faith, you put your very life in it. Well, what about your spiritual life? That's all the likes of Hebrews 11.1 1 is saying, appear on the board in the Amplified. Now faith is the assurance, title deed, confirmation of things hoped for, divinely guaranteed. In other words, he says, you get in my car, you're going. I guarantee it, personally. You can have faith in it. I know you don't know everything, and you're not going to. Your life's not long enough. You're not. I didn't make you intelligent enough. So I don't expect you to memorize the entire Bible. I expect you and I want you to be humble so that I can give you the things that I want to give you starting with faith. That's all this is talking about. It's amazing how much faith you have in a hunk of steel out there. But not this. It's absolutely amazing. You put your life on the line in a stupid vehicle, but you won't give your life over to Christ. Are you kidding? No. Now, faith is the assurance, title, deed, confirmation of things hoped for, divinely guaranteed, and the evidence of things not seen, the conviction of their reality. Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by the physical senses. I've taught this in the past. Your faith, if it's from God, is more real than this. All right, I'm going to whip this at Joey's head. You ready? Joey's going to be like, no, that was really real, Dad. But if he has supernatural faith, it's more real than this. I know that's hard to comprehend, but that's the strength and the power of faith. Another very important point in all of this, and I've got a little time before closing, is something that came up Thursday or Sunday, I can't remember. Concentrate. What sanctification isn't. We hear a lot about what sanctification is, but what isn't it? We aren't meant to conquer darkness. Christ already did that for us. Amen. That's why we ought to not spend all our time wrestling with something that's already dead to us. Romans six ten to fourteen. We aren't meant to conquer darkness. Too many believers spend all their time wrestling with the flesh instead of just turning to the light. Go to Romans 6.10. Romans 6.10. Christ already conquered death. This we know from Scripture. That's why we we ought not spend our time wrestling with it. Romans 6.10. As proof, so you, you see this directly into your soul... 6.10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of right unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Again, this is one of those principles that you need to take home with you this weekend and ponder what sanctification isn't. We're not sanctified by overcoming darkness. That's what I believe a lot of um, self-help clinics get wrong. Let's focus on all the garbage. Let's just throw all of your issues out on the table, and then let's spend the next few years of our lives focusing on how to fix those issues. That's wrestling with things that are fruitless. The whole realm of it is fruitless. Recognize it for what it is. It's garbage and turn to the light. In faith. In humility. You see, the arrogant person says, I got it, God. I'm going to see. You see this, this here steer right here? I'm going to wrestle it to the ground. Mm. My cat will tie it and get his feet. You know what I'm saying? That's arrogance. That's the person who says, I got it, God. You go focus on somebody else who's weaker than me. I got this one. I'm going to wrestle with my flesh until the day I die. That's stupid. It's fruitless. It's folly. So we aren't meant to conquer darkness. Christ already did that for us. That's why we ought not spend all our time wrestling with something that's already dead to us. Not walking by the Spirit is like trying to have a conversation with a dead person. Not the opposite. Not walking by the Spirit is like trying to have a conversation with a dead person. It's just going to frustrate you. I hope. People are weird. Concentrate, and I'll close, I think, with this thread. Death is darkness. Death is darkness. However... If you're standing and facing the darkness, and there's—I now imagine this. Suppose there was infinite darkness, almost like space. You're in space, but with no stars, just looking ahead. No sun, no stars, just blackness. If you're standing and facing the darkness and there's nothing else in front of you to reflect any light that might be behind you, all you'll ever see is darkness. So, if you try to defeat the darkness, let's say, by running backwards, not turning around, running backwards, backpedaling out of your old life, this would be backpedaling. Well, at least I'm not as close as I used to be. At least I'm not as fleshly as I used to be. You might be worse because you actually think that the lights you're in, or you actually think the darkness that you're in is light. That's a bigger trap than just saying, ooh, I'm ugly. My flesh is ugly. It is. But it gets uglier if you try to justify you trying to fix it up. That just complicates things and makes your life even worse. So, if you try to defeat the darkness by running backwards, let's say, you're going to end up really tired. So, I know these are rocket science principles. But the Bible is pretty simple. Lo and behold. I submit the following solution to that problem. And I think I'll end here. Sanctification. No matter how fast you run backwards, you'll never escape darkness until you simply turn around and face the light. Don't matter how fast you are or how adept you are at so-called wrestling with darkness, with the flesh, with spiritually dead things. That's what we just read from Paul. What are you doing? You're dead to sin. Sin's dead to you. What are you even facing the darkness for? This is sanctification. It's just a change of perspective, isn't it? You mean I don't have to learn like, this whole book, and I don't have to go home and read all these like theology books and this kind of thing, and then I'll be sanctified? No. It's way simpler than that. Way simpler than that. It's just a change of perspective for you all being saved. No matter how fast you run backwards, you'll never escape darkness until you simply turn around and face the light. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.